0: Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com.
1: There's a scripture that says the new wine is found in the cluster. A cluster of grapes that come together that are willing to be crushed into a new wine will be what God is doing in this hour. And it's exciting. God is moving cross culturally. There's a, a group of uh, Hispanic churches we met with last night called LIPA, Long Island Hispanic Pastors Association. Number of churches coming together. It's about a dozen churches last night met in Copay with a real heart to serve one another, to serve the body of Christ. And it's exciting to see what God is doing what is even more exciting to me Jim Jorgensen who's a prophet ministered he ministered in, in you know in Spanish and, and, and English but also God is bringing together in that same realm on a different track the youth leaders of Long Island to come together to be anointed to have a mantle. So we're, we're, we're looking forward to what God is doing in this hour. And we know that this church is going to be part of that network of what God is doing. It's a sovereign network that God is doing. He's connecting the body of Christ. And I'm excited because unity is my middle name.
2: Uh, just a few quick announcements, too. Uh, talking about the new wineskin that our brother was telling us about, uh, the leadership here. We've been praying and thinking and talking about the Christmas breakfast. Is, is this exactly the wineskin that God wants us to do again this year? And there's been discussion uh, a long time about it. So what we've decided is we're not going to have our traditional uh, Christmas breakfast this year quite this way. We're going to be waiting on God in the beginning of the year for next year to see what if there's something, uh, what the difference a different way God may want us to do this. But in the interim, we're certainly not going to wait till next Christmas to reach out. What we've decided is on the 15th, that Sunday, and the 22nd, two Sundays right before Christmas, what we're going to do is we're asking you, we're going to try to set up like a, a breakfast. It's going to be a little bit more relaxed. We're still going to have bro- uh, Brother Tom, Pastor Tom's going to be here uh, on one of those Sundays. And uh, what we're going to do is have it more relaxed, breakfast, you know, um a, a drama skit, uh, the word, a short word. We're asking you, how many of you watch the uh, John Ortberg uh, DVD where we talk, We saw Linda Wilson, the bus driver? Remember the bus driver? You know, just there are people in your life that you, you're with all, all the time. You may work with them. You may um, meet them at the store occasionally, neighbors. We believe that... This is the hour for, for God wants us to, to move out, and we believe his spirit is moving. And everywhere you go, the church is saying the same thing everywhere. It's time for the church to move out and be a blessing to the world. Be a blessing to the world. So there's somebody, at least somebody, that we believe God wants you to invite to church on one of those Sundays. Uh, we believe, that, you know, God's going to take down the powers that maybe some people, uh, you know, that are exist for a Sunday morning church service but we believe god's doing something new so expect some changes in the people around you amen so that's the uh, 15th and the 22nd just another real quick um note um i hope you're you're reading the email bulletin that goes out every week because you are arms i hope you are um, because we put some things in there that we think are particularly strategic for the hour or particularly important. Uh, a few weeks ago, I put in an article by Watchman Nee on um, how to talk to a to a person to an un- a person doesn't know Christ, and it it is the best article I have ever read in my whole entire life, and I'm not I'm not throwing words around. It really changed my whole horizon. It was very, very meaningful for me, and I feel like it's it's really a clarity. So if you haven't gone on the email and looked it up, will you please do that? It's an article by Watchman Nee, N-E-E. Well,
0: I was telling James, you know, sometimes when you're in the middle of something, it's difficult to see. Uh, And so sometimes a third party, somebody like me who's a pastor in another place, and so as someone who's a little bit outside looking in on something like this, I mean, 800 meals on Thanksgiving Day, and not only that, but the year-round feeding and the blessings are us. Sometimes when you're in the middle of it all, you can't really appreciate what a blessing your church is being to the community. And so I, I think it's good that that stuff gets highlighted from time to time, usually around this time, but it goes on. But let me just add the, you know, if I can be a cheerleader for you, keep it up. Don't get discouraged. Keep going. And what you're doing is blessing a lot of people, and it is not easy. And so I looked at James. I said, these people are all volunteer, right? And he's like, it's volunteers. They're just crushing it. And so uh, I'm proud of you. And I'm proud to be a part of your larger family. For what that's worth, old Pastor Tom is proud of you. I don't know. There you go. I don't know. (laughs) For what that's worth. Uh, But I mean it. That's awesome. And so keep it up. Yep. And uh, you're blessing me personally uh, by being here. And also James is going to preach on November 22nd is Friday. She gives birth. So, 23rd, 24th, that Sunday, James is going to preach for me. So, like, that's good. And so, on behalf of Jackie and me and everybody, we appreciate that. So, lots of good stuff. Uh, Last week, I began a little mini-series called John Come Alive. And the point of last week was John's point in writing the whole gospel. Do you remember that? Last week, John says why he wrote the book. He'll tell you. In John chapter 20, he'll tell you. Look, Jesus did all these things. He did a lot more things than I even had time or space to write. But the things that I've written are written. Do you remember this? So that you may believe the Messiah, the one we're all looking for, the one who can solve all this world mess we're in, the Son of God, the one that that could actually have the power to do something about this, not just be a a son of, you know, not not only man, but also fully man, fully God. That, That Messiah, that Son of God is none other than this Jesus of Nazareth. And that by believing in him, you could have life in his name. So that's the point why I wrote the book. So he's going to say, I'll give you these seven signs that he does one through seven in the first half of the book. You're going to see that not a lot of people believe a lot. Some do not everybody does. And then the back half of the book, you're going to see his death, burial and resurrection. Some people call that the eighth sign as in seven days of creation, new creation. Look what he's doing. Whatever, he's saying, look, th- this is it. Here's the evidence. Read the book of John and, by- and, and believe that Jesus is the, 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 the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in his name. So he's trying to bring everybody to a point of decision. Now let me ask you, are you like me? When you have a really tough decision, uh, are you good or bad at making big decisions? Some of you have gotten good at it because you make decisions all day long in your workplace uh, uh, or in your family. Others of you still struggle with making decisions. Do any of you do the, the list when you have a really big decision? It could be between two really good things or, or really bad things and you're choosing the lesser of two evils. Do any of you make the list of pros and cons? Do you try to, do, Have you ever said, Man, if I only knew the future, I could make this decision. Like, <laughs> duh, you know, right? If only I knew the outcomes that would come from this or the outcomes that could come from that. And it's such a... And the more important the decision, the bigger the decision, the more and more difficult it becomes because there's all this pressure. What if I make the wrong decision? So you go and get advisors. You go and get counsel. What do you think? What do you think? You toss and turn all night. And at the end of all that, what do you finally do? You do what I do. You delay it. Again, you're just like, maybe, you know... of And you keep delaying it. And the more difficult the decision, the more you put off deciding until eventually either something happens where you don't have to decide about it anymore. It's like, you know, finally I don't have to decide. That sale has passed. And so, you know, well, should I buy the house or not? Well, if you wait long enough, your decision will just sort of vaporize. You don't have to choose anymore. It's been sold. You know what I mean? So you sort of wait. Or there's some deadline, right? The registrar of your university emails you, you are a fifth-year senior. You must declare a major, right? (laughs) You know that moment? Jackie and I struggle with particular decision. And it's like there, it, there comes these natural deadlines that are just built into life. Like when the nurse said, we are so happy for you and your new baby. Before we let you take this baby out of the hospital, you need to go ahead and nail down a name. You know what I mean? There's that moment where, you know, you can't. the kid's 12. Hey, baby boy. Like, at some point, you got to just go with it, okay? Uh, uh, it, it, I, the, these deadlines can be so scary. But if you're like me, what we generally do is, I don't like either, and I don't like or. Like, I don't like either of these choices. There's so many negatives that would go if I did this route. Meanwhile, there's so many negatives if I did this route, and I can't do, I can't, I can't do nothing. So, uh, what a lot of us do is we look for this, we kind of grasp for this magical third option. You ever do this? Where you're just like, there has to be some angle I've not thought of, where I can have, I can have it both. I can do both. There's got to be this, this magical third option. And I'll just keep... Putting off a decision and just sort of waiting for this magical third option. Imagine, for example, to illustrate, imagine, for example, you're a groom and you're getting married. And let's say that a year ago it was your job to properly book the church. And let's just say that you realize on the morning of your wedding that you never actually finalize that paperwork. And you find out that though there will be weddings that day, yours will not be one of them. Because you have failed to book your church. Now, you've got a couple options, right? Neither one good. You either call your bride on the morning of that wedding and say, "We, Honey, right? We either must... um, Cancel our wedding for today and rebook this church. So, pro, you get the church you want. Con, you lose all that investment and all that time you've invested and it won't be on the day we want. Or, you say, we can keep all the investment, we keep this marriage going forward on this particular day, but let's just take any church, in the whole, call the whole city, any church that will take us. And the pro is, you get to still have your wedding that day. The negative is, you, you, you don't get the church you want, right? Who would want to be in that position? That is exactly where Neil McArdle of Liverpool, England, found himself earlier this year. Did any of you read this story? Yeah. So, uh, if you read it. So, uh, Neil McArdle of Liverpool, England, found himself on that morning at St. George's Hall of Liverpool, realizing that he had, in fact, not properly filled out the paperwork to book the church. And like all of us, look for that magical third solution. I can't tell her this, uh, that we can rebook. I can't tell her. And so uh, he, uh, quite naturally, uh, that morning walked uh, down the road, found a phone booth, and uh, called St. George's Hall, claiming that a bomb was due to go off in 45 minutes. St. George's Hall was evacuated. Police were called in, to which he stood there next to Amy Williams, his fiance, in the street, in her wedding gown, going, Not my fault, honey, bomb threat. <laughs> Craziest thing. Yeah. McArdle is in jail now. Uh, he, <clears throat> I'll just read you the newspaper article. McArdle, 36, was arrested the same day and admitted he made the call because he had forgotten to fill out the paperwork for the wedding. Prosecutor Derek Jones is quoted as saying, he did say several times how embarrassed and ashamed he was, and how sorry he was. A judge in Liverpool Crown Court in Northwest England sentenced Mcardle to 12 months in jail, to which every groom in here is like, "He should have got 12 hours." I feel you, bro. <laughs> like you know, but um, there are so many things I want to say about this article. Not the least of which is how scary is your bride <laughs> that you would rather go to jail. <laughs> Then tell her, honey. We're not going to talk about that, but we are going to illustrate how, um, uh, according to the article, they're actually still together. Ridiculous. We, we, you know, we think that's comical, but we've all tried to do that. It's like when, when, when two options we don't like, I just want to hang out in this land called undecided indefinitely. And the whole point of John's gospel is little by little to move you out of this undeclared when it comes to Jesus Christ. Like for, against, and little by little he's squeezing out the middle ground of undeclared. Like, it's not at first. See, at first, there's all this talk about, like, would well, Jesus, you know, you can sort of hang out in the first few chapters, first few signs, and you get this notion that, like, Jesus is just a good guy. Jesus is just a good prophet. He's a good teacher. I tell you, he does all these nice things, you know? Like, he's not, you know what, I don't have to declare for or against. I don't have to determine this stuff. I'll give you an example. One time, he turned, uh, this this party, this, this wedding, had run out of wine, and Jesus saved the day. He turned water into wine to keep the party going. See what I mean? So nice. There was another time when all these people were really, really hungry. And Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed the multitudes. Like, super nice guy. And in those first few signs, you're like, at first, because you're not really picking up that all these things are signs pulled out of the Old Testament that he's pointing to Messiah. You're just saying, wow, really nice guy. And a lot of people are hanging out there. And little by little, John sort of tightens this this whole uh, uh, middle ground up until it's like there's there's less and less. And in John chapter eight, at the end of John chapter eight, and if you if you want to go ahead and turn there, this is a sneak peek. We're going to look at John nine. At the end of John eight, we see some verses where, and I, I actually put some up on the screen so you could follow along if you don't uh, if you're not able to turn there super fast. But uh, uh, maybe uh, that's okay. Uh, maybe if you could just advance it, yeah. Um, well, anyway, the, 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 okay, perfect. At the, uh, at the, there's this dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. His heart breaks. And the Pharisees say, what are you, what are you greater than Abraham? And he says, uh, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, some of you, that'll mean a lot too. For others, of you look at that and you're like, well, the only thing this tells me is that Jesus had like very bad grammar. Uh, before Jesus was born, I before Abraham was born, I am, and uh, what that refers to is uh, 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 I won't belabor the point now because many of you know it. But in Exodus three, suffice to say, when God introduces Himself, this this will be my name. He says, "Tell him Yahweh, I am who I am." In Greek, "ego a me, I am I." Basically, and so Jesus points to Himself and says, "Before Abraham was, Yahweh, right." Now, when you point to yourself and call yourself the unspeakable, matchless, holy name of God, the next verse goes without saying. It says, oops, it says, uh, at this they picked up stones to throw at him, right? He's a blasphemer. And so obviously this guy can't, yeah, at this they picked up stones to throw at him because he claimed to be equal with God, right? But Jesus does his ninja thing where he slips away from the temple grounds and uh, uh, they're not able to get him. But you see what he's doing? John's saying, look, he's forcing us to decide. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and he is, you got to worship him as Lord, or you've got, you, really, the Pharisees had no choice. They weren't supposed to do it in mob violence. They were supposed to do it in the, like, you know, proper confines of a trial, not, not mob violence. But, but they weren't wrong for, for stoning somebody if he wasn't, in fact, God. So what's the Bible saying here? What does this mean? What it's saying is it's not okay to be neutral when it comes to Jesus, right? The one who put this most famously, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of. I know Pastor James. Have you ever uh, mentioned to your people about C.S. Lewis? Has that ever? Never, right? Not one. Yeah, didn't even know? You should read him. You'd love him. He's, he's great. A little inside joke. I'm kidding. Uh, a big fan of, James, uh, of C.S. Lewis, is C.S. Lewis is James and I both, and so he's probably read this quote to you before. They call it the Uh, Okay, I'll try it again. Let's see if this does it perfect. They call it the trilemma. I put part of the quote up here. I don't don't do this. I never just read to you a big passage, but I have to. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, just part of the quotes up here. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, the one thing that got to him, the one thing he was like, the one thing you can't say is the thing I hear all the time. And so Lewis sort of frustrated. I hear the same thing in New York. You hear this over and over. It's like, that's the one thing about Jesus you cannot say. That's the one nonsensical thing. If somebody walked up to C.S. Lewis and says, I think Jesus is a liar and a blasphemer worthy of hell. Lewis would be okay with that. What he's not okay with was this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't claim to it. I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So it's liar, lunatic, or Lord. The, 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 they call this the great trilemma. In fact, if you uh, uh, need like a quick pocket apologetics where you just sort of want something in your back pocket when you're at the barbershop and everybody's saying, Well, I, you know, I, think, uh, I, I think Jesus, I got nothing against Jesus. Be like, really? Like, when he claimed to be the son of God, like, that's okay? Like, that's okay with you that, you know, well, no, come to think of it. You know, it's just sort of a, he's either liar or lunatic or Lord. The one thing that makes no sense is, um, uh, well, he, he's okay, you know, no opinion, neutral. Okay, fine, but in Jesus' day, what would force people to decide on Jesus? And that leads us to today in John chapter 9. I just want to read the story. I actually put some of the scriptures up on the the screen for you. But I think it's best when dealing with a narrative like this just to read the story. And so I'm going to read to you John 9. Now, if you're the type who wants to follow along, you can read it with me. If others of you just want to close your eyes and hear this great narrative read to you, do that. You know, many of you read to your children, but you've forgotten how great it is to be read to. So like kindergarten, pull up your little carpet square and old Tom's going to read you a story. Okay, um, But it is a, it's a gem. One of my favorites. I know I say that every week. Uh, John 9 as Jesus went along he saw a man blind from birth so his disciples asked him Rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus this happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life as long as it is day we must do the work of him who sent me night is coming when no one can work while I'm in the world I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground. (laughs) Made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sin. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Well, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others insisted, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes open, they demanded. He replied, "Uh, the man they call uh, Jesus. Yeah, he like uh, made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. Oh, he said. Well, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Dun, dun, dun. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he would received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Well, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. Well, the Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? Well, how is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, his parents (laughs) replied. And we know he was born blind. But um, how he can see now or or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Uh, Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. See, his, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For already the Jews had acknowledged that anyone... Uh, uh, already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know. I once was blind. Now I can see. What, I mean, what a story, huh? So, uh, in the, um, the, the, the story starts off with this false either or. I just want to walk through some of the high points of the story. The story starts off with this false either or. Uh, you notice that the, the rabbis, I mean, the, the disciples walk up and they see this guy blind from birth. And so, this question, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? There's a lot behind that question. <clears throat> see, there was this theology that though the Old Testament tried to stamp it out, and though preachers ever since have tried to stamp it out because it's not at all from God, there's this there's this doctrine that <clears throat> um, if you've got some problem in your life, if you are disabled in some way, uh, that's simply God punishing you. Okay, simple as that. One to one correlation. Uh, this is basically a karma. Right? You did something bad, and the powers and forces that be have punished you. They believe in God, so obviously God is the one punishing you. Simple as that. Okay, now. If you tell me, um, hey, I think the world is messed up in general because of sin, I can get with that. Like, I, Yeah. But if you're saying the particularity can be traced back, then I would just say, read the book of Job. Like, over and over again. Job's going, I'm a righteous man. I haven't done this. And his friends are like,
2: what'd you do,
0: right? He's so mad at you for something, right? When, in fact, that wasn't the case at all, you see? So over and over, the Old Testament tried to stamp it out, but they couldn't do it. So obviously, this guy did something horribly wrong, and God punished him with blindness. Case closed. The trouble is, this particular blind man throws them a theological curveball. Why? Because he's blind from birth. Now that's a head scratcher. What did he do that God punished him if he didn't have a chance to do anything? So disciples are like, what do you think? I don't know. Good question. James and John, sons of thunder, are like we can tell you it it's his parents. Believe me, because ask thunder. Trust me, like we pay for old thunder. Whatever, like they're talking it out. They're going, no, no, no. and people are saying, but that's not fair, right? And so Andrew's like, no, 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 no. no, no, no. I got it. I got it. Or maybe, you know what? Maybe Philip. Maybe like the the spreadsheet. The guy who was like eight months' wages will not feed the five thousand. All right, you know that guy. Or was that Nathaniel? Whatever, whichever one. They're the ones that are like, no, 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 I got it, I got it. God is punishing him retroactively for the sin that he has not done yet because in his foreknowledge, he knows he's going to commit the sin and is zapping him retroactively for the sin he hadn't done yet because he knows he's going to commit it one day. All right? To which they're asking, what do you think? Thomas, you believe that? I doubt it. You, know, you see that coming to my life, right? So Peter's like, I got it, I got it, I got it. Neither, no, 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 He sinned in the womb. He was an evil little fetus who kicked and punched and did all these things, right? And Andrew's like, how are we related, bro? How are we even related? Look at your nonsense. They're fighting all this out. And suddenly, two things crack me up. One is, the blind guy's hearing all this. Like, can you imagine? Let's talk about him like he's not even there. And that's, by the way, that's how we treat people in great pain, is it not? Like, hey, you are a theological quandary to be solved. Instead of, hey, I'm a... Like the blind guy's eventually like, you guys know I'm blind, not deaf. Like, I'm, I'm getting all this, right? The second thing is, they remember, like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Jesus is here. Oh, he's always figuring these things out. So, Rabbi, we've got to... So we, uh, all we need you to do is just choose from our pre-selected options, okay? Yes. We've got you in this box, and we know the answer. God, you must fit in a human theology box. So, is it A or B? And God's like, stupid box. Like... <laughs> Uh, he says, uh, neither this man nor his parents sinned. I think I got that one up. I can't remember which one. No, didn't have it. So I'll tell it to you. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This happened so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Now, uh, he doesn't mean there that his parents, everybody knows. He doesn't mean his parent and him, that they were like sinless perfection. No, no, no. He's saying, don't try to pin this thing on either the parents or this man. Because this was done so the work of God could be displayed in his life. Now there, the, the blind guy surely perked up at that. He's like, I've heard my whole life that it was my parents' sin. To which I don't, I don't get how that's fair. Like, your parents didn't sin? And if so, like, what, you know? And I don't, I, I've heard all my life how I sinned, but I didn't... I was blind from birth, you know? The the in the womb thing was new, but it's ridiculous, right? And so he's going through all that. But he's never heard neither this man nor his parents sinned. This was done so the work of God could be displayed in his life. Never heard that. Uh, he'd never even... Um, thought about that, that, that maybe, you know, uh, 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 Jesus Christ, the arbiter of creation, does this thing where he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Uh, two very serious things about that, and one uh, not as serious, but just as important, but um, One is, um, think about it, Jesus Christ, the Word. Like the Word, in the beginning, where was the Word? The Word was with God, the Word was God. John chapter 1, just a few chapters ago, uh, uh, he talks about that. How there there was nothing that was made, that wasn't made through the power of Jesus Christ, right? So God spoke it into being, and the Word is like the arbiter of creation. And so uh, several people point out that here, when he bends down and he makes mud, what did, in Genesis 1, come on, what did he make Adam out of? Was it not the dust of the ground? Here, he takes the dust of the ground, as in, yo, I got power over this i'm the creator i'm certainly the recreator. so here, sin has caused and all this stuff and you guys are all trying to pin it on him trust me i got much bigger plans for him and everybody else and the early church father irenaeus has this killer quote where and it, it really when i read it i just had to like stop he says um remember jesus was the arbiter of creation and so uh, uh and irenaeus says and i don't know i don't know all of the theological ins and outs of this but it definitely made me stop uh, so, I wouldn't quote myself on this, but i quote somebody else. Uh, Irenaeus, he says, uh, uh, Jesus, when he made this man the first time, left out his eyesight so that he could supply it now. So the work of God, God could be displayed in his life. Now, there's all kinds of theological things like, does God make somebody with. I, I, I don't know all that. You have to ask Irenaeus. He, he's dead. Uh, so, you have to ask somebody smarter than me. I don't know all that. But here's what made me stop and think. Every time I look at Jesus doing a miracle, I always marvel. And sometimes it's like, man, Jesus knew what that guy was thinking. And I'm always like, how? But Irenaeus' quote made me remember because he was there when he built his brain. Like, Jesus never exactly does a miracle. He just sort of like does a recreation of what he already, like, he was, the reason he could turn fish and bread into food for 5,000 is because he was there when fish and bread were made from Nothing. So the fish and bread was like nothing. I mean, that to him is like, what? I'm just rearranging molecules. You should have seen when I did this out of nothing. Ex nihilo. Y'all are impressed by this. But, uh, that made me think of that. And then the third thing, and it's not as uh, maybe uh, uh, such you know, theological import, but I can't miss this, is that uh, Jesus spit on the ground. Because the first part of that verse is, like, like right before that, he says, um, uh, having said, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spit on the ground. So verse 5, I am the light of the world. Sum lux mundi. You'll see that in stained glass windows all the time. You can go to these cathedrals and there's Jesus. "Ah, I am the light of the world. It's sort of a play on words because the light is coming through Jesus. Never in all your travels, ever, you will never see the very next moment spitting. Right? Like captured in stained glass. And like the light comes through the spittle. and "Ah," Right? Uh, for a couple reasons. One is because we're still a little bit docetist. I mean, we're still a little bit like Jesus just seemed to be human. He wasn't actual flesh and blood. I mean, surely the son of God wouldn't spit in the ground. Yup. Right. So he spits in the ground, uh, 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 and then begins making mud with the saliva and puts it on, puts it on the man's eyes. And so we go, Ooh, imagine being the blind guy. You're process, I'm the light of the world. What could that mean? You know, he's never seen light. He doesn't understand. And he hears this mud, you know, he hears the spitting, and whatever. And then he hears mud packing sounds and then, you know, and he's thinking, oh man, this healer's using mud to heal my eyes. And the, you know, slowly starting to run down into his mouth, you know, and he's thinking, but what's so strange is where do you get mud from? It's been so dry lately. I know where he got dust and dirt, but how would he have gotten mud? Oh no, he didn't, right? Like, like you start to piece together. Like, are you kidding me? So then Jesus says, "Go wash." You think, right? Now, in that moment, here's the first either or. There's no more middle ground. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Jesus tells you, go and wash. He doesn't say, hey, this is going to be a huge miracle. Hey, this is going to cause you to be like the first Christian apologist. You're going to be like this crazy Jesus defender. You're going to lose. This is going to be unbelievable. This is going to result in your healing. And about 2,000 years from now, there's going to be a dude from Kentucky. He's going to go to New York. Long story. He's going to preach about you. This is going to be humongous. Go and do that. What's he say? Go and wash in the pool of you can do it or not He's blind. He can't just go and find the pool of Siloam. He has to be led. There's a lot of obstacles. And so it is very possible he would have gone and just washed it out anywhere. Can you believe this? But are you going to do it because Jesus said, will you go and do something because Jesus said, will you go wash in the pool of Siloam or not? Either or. No middle ground. No middle ground. Uh, You know that um, he did. He went and washed. And the Bible says he came home seeing I don't know what that moment was like. I don't know if he was mad. I don't know if he was happy. I don't know if he was rejoicing. I don't know if he was confused. Maybe all of the above. But he's going to miss out on a day's almsgiving. You know, if he doesn't beg this day, he's not going to get fed. And so he's maybe upset that this little field trip of washing the mud off his. Or maybe he's thrilled. Like, this is my one shot. I didn't know how I'd be healed, but I knew it'd be weird, and this'll work. You know, whatever. And so he's. But the point is, he's washing the mud out of. Out in the pool of Sloam. You sure you've taken me to the pool of salome? You didn't? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. This is really it. All right. Man, I just don't. came home seeing. You tell me what that walk home was like. It's not like he used to could see years ago and was suddenly reminded of all those old colors he loved. He loved the fall leaves, and he loved that particular bird, and he loved that little, the way that little uh, cloud bounced up. It's not like he remembered all that. He, he the, For the first time in his life, he saw green. So he walks home. And that branch that heretofore he would have hit, he just, no. Like, I can snap that branch off. And there's that bird that woke him up every morning. Now he and ate it. I don't know. I don't know what he did. But he could do stuff now that he heretofore had never done. So his neighbors are now, see what's happening? Middle ground. What are you going to do about Jesus? And so they look for that third option. This is like, like, well, obviously, okay, it, oh, they're starting to piece it together. If Jesus really is the healer and he's the one from God, then, like, he, nobody has power to heal like this. And so they look for that third option. The, the Pharisees do the same thing. And so they say, well, it's obviously a switcheroo. You remember that? His neighbors were like, no, no, no. This, because that is so out there, nobody's ever heard. Uh, first of all, healing the blind is crazy. There's, like, one reference maybe in the Old Testament to healing the blind. But, no, but that was a person who used to could see. Nowhere. There is no, and the blind man is going to say this later, there's no Old Testament record of congenital blindness being healed. It's never happened. So only God could do something like this. But if he's God, why would he have done it on the Sabbath? Ah, third option. It's, it's just a guy who looks like him, right? Not really the guy. And so he has to stand there and say, I am the man. Like, how ridiculous is this? I promise I'm really mean. You know what I mean? It's like, quick, show me your birth certificate. Prove you're alive. That illustration was awesome in my head. I thought maybe it didn't, maybe it sort of flopped. But you know what, this is ridiculous. I am me. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is having to do over and over. Isn't it? Isn't Jesus just like that? Over and over again with the Pharisees, he's having to go, "Ah, yes, it's really me. And they keep asking to prove all these things. He's like, to what authority do you want me to appeal to? Like, I'm God. If everybody is blind, how does the light, what can the light do except testify to itself? So anyway... um, uh, he goes through this thing where the man they call Jesus, and then little, later on the, the Pharisees get involved, and it's, well, but, but the Sabbath, and how could he, either he is a sinner or the one from God, and the, the guy says, I don't know, like, look in verse 17, they force him to decide, he's like, I don't know, a prophet, that's not full-blown Christology, yes, he's the one from God, he's the son of God, Lord of glory, but it's a step in the right direction. My point is, he keeps, the middle ground keeps getting drawn tighter and tighter, and each time he's faced with these either ors, and he keeps ruling out, the or. That's the whole point of this sermon, by the way. That over and over again, when he's faced with either or, he doesn't like what Je- he doesn't like saying what Jesus is not. And so eventually he lands on what he is. That's all. So he says, prophet here. And then he could have he stayed there his whole life, I think. And this is, has everything to do with us. He could have stayed, like a lot of people I know, he could have stayed in the whole, Jesus is a good prophet place. And ironically, it was the Pharisees, Who moved him out of that. It was the Pharisees who forced him into a point of decision. Is he just a prophet? They don't. No, no, no. Because a good prophet wouldn't do this. The Pharisees force him into C.S. Lewis's sort of trilemma, don't they? No, no, no. I don't want to hear he's a good prophet. They bring in the parents for this mock trial. And how ridiculous is this? Is this really your son? Like, prove it. Yeah, he's our son. And you say he was born blind. Kind of thing you don't miss. Like, yeah, you know, what do you want from us? And he's like, well, then how was he? Ah, but that's the trick. They said, now we realize what's really going on. They badgered him and just said, if you, if you say that this is really the Christ, you'll be put out of the synagogue. And so they're like, well, we, we like being in the synagogue. And in an ultimate parenting fail, uh, they leave this kid out to dry. And they're like, you know what? Just good luck. I mean, obviously, you've been begging your whole life. It's not like we've been taking care of you. So why would you expect us to take care of you now? I mean, he's parents. Unreal. But, you know, good luck. He's of age. Ask him. That way we can keep our membership in the synagogue. And so they start lecturing him, right? I love verse 24. A second time they summon the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God. That's like on oath. Like, come on, stop blasphemy. Give glory to God. They said, we know this man is a sinner. That's not a question. You notice that? They're they're trying to question. That's not a question. That's just yelling. And then he says, well, whether he's a sinner or not, y'all are the theologians. Y'all got to figure that out. One thing I know, I once was blind and now I see. What are you going to do with that? And so then they, be, they replied, uh, well, what did he do to you? How did he open his eyes? How did he open your eyes? And now you see what they're doing. They're trying to trick him in his testimony. They're trying, to, they're trying to, obviously this can't be happening. Because if he's the one from God, he could do that miracle. That makes sense. But he wouldn't have healed on the Sabbath. And so, ugh, they, got, there has to be some other option. And there's not, it's not there. And so he's like, well, you know, you got me thinking. Like, maybe is he a sinner? And so they say, they say well, what did he do? In verse 27, I told you already and you didn't listen. And I love this. Why do you want to hear the story again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Right? You know, they Like that just... They filled them with rage. And they're like... It says they hurled insults at him and said, You're this fellow's disciples, right? We are disciples of Moses. Which again, a false... That's a false either or. Because if you were a true disciple of Moses, you would do what Moses would want you to do. And Moses would go, You realize I follow Jesus. Like... It's a false either or. It's not either Moses or Jesus. Moses is on team Jesus. Right? And that's the thing. Like, Jesus kept trying to point that out to him. You know, They're like, we're children of Abraham, and that's why we're against you. He's like, if you were a real child of Abraham, I'd tell you who your dad actually is. Remember that from John 8? He says it's the devil. Anyway, we know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow. We don't even know where he comes from. Okay, let's, let's land this plane. Let's draw this to a close. I believe that in the next verse, verse 30, and I'll put it up here to show, I believe this is what's happening. Do you ever know people who think out loud? Sometimes that's frustrating because you just want to say, hey, here's what we need to do. You just stop talking for a minute. Get that thought all together, then I'll know what to respond to. You know what I mean? Because they're thinking things out loud, and they're eventually going to land somewhere. But you don't know where they are. Is anybody? I am that person. Is anybody else? My wife sometimes I think wishes I could like stop and just have like buffering, buffering, like loading, like a little status bar, and then she would okay now let's engage. Instead, I like think it out loud or whatever. We get to see this guy's thought bubble where he's thinking things out loud. It's like the Pharisees keep forcing him. Is he a sinner? tell me he's a sinner and because over and over again he's like wait he's not a sinner so we watch this watch this he thinks out loud well now we don't know where this guy comes from interesting so he's like now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners he listens to the godly man who does his to the godly person who does his will, and nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind, which is totally true. It's nowhere in the Old Testament. Nobody's ever heard of this. So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Huh? Like right there at the end of verse thirty-three, that's where I believe that guy gets saved. At the end of verse thirty-three, he goes, "Huh? Yeah, he he taught me into it. Thanks, Pharisees. I am a Jesus follower." And, like, the irony that they were trying to, like, stop that. They're the very people who led him because they kept forcing him. They kept forcing the issue. And he's like, you know what? Yeah, yeah. I just—I think I just thought my way into this. Yeah. Well, they they did not like that because the logic was impeccable. And when people's logic are impeccable, the the, the classical term for this, they call it, is an odd homonym attack. You know, when somebody has perfect logic, you just say, oh, yeah, well, you're dumb. You know, or whatever. And you walk off. (laughs) Uh, That's basically what they do. To this they replied... You were steeped in sin at birth, right? Now, it, that's not just a shot. That's the cruelest shot they could take. Remember back in the very beginning of this chapter, what was the debate? Who was covered in the sin? And what they're saying is, the reason, yeah, now we know the answer to that question. It was you, steeped in sin at birth. There are levels and levels and levels of irony to this, um, but I'll just, I'll just pick one in the interest of time. Uh, ironically, the whole thing they're trying to prove is that Jesus did not do this miracle. And in that statement... They're thereby showing that Jesus did, in fact, do that miracle, right? You're steeped in sin at birth. As in, we agree, you are the blind guy and everything. Steeped in sin. How dare you lecture us? And now you're looking at us. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Well, uh, Jesus is a good shepherd. And just because he was thrown out of these man-made institutions, trust me, the good shepherd knows how to find his sheep. And that's exactly what he does. When Jesus heard that He had thrown him out, he found him. and in verse uh, 35, uh, we see that uh, uh, Jesus asked him, "I love this little interchange." He goes to, Now remember, this is important because he goes and finds the, the blind guy who was healed, because the blind guy couldn't find Jesus, because think about it. He had never seen Jesus. That's important for the story. Like it was a, you understand, it was a drive-by healing. Uh, uh, well, walk by. But like, he went to the pool of Siloam. Jesus was gone. So he had never seen Jesus. He had never laid eyes on Jesus. And so Jesus sort of walks up to him like, Huh. All this Messiah talk, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. Hey, what about, what about you? I'm curious. You know, I won't tell the synagogue leaders. I'm just taking a poll. Uh, <laughs> what, what about you? Where do you stand? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he's like, I got nothing to lose at this point. I've been kicked out of the synagogue. He says, you show him to me. Yes. I, he says, who is he, sir? The man asked. You tell me so I may believe in him. In other words, you point him out to me and I'll, I'll believe. And of all the things Jesus could have said to him, he could have said, it is I. He could have said, Jesus. He could have said, Yahweh. He could have said, right, worship me. He could have said all those things. Of all the things he could have said, our Lord said, You have now seen him. Get it? Because he didn't always see. Yeah, right. (laughs) How great is that? Really? How great is our God? You've now seen him. In fact, he's the one talking to you right now. And of course, the guy probably recognized his voice. And uh, verse 38, uh, the man said, yep, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I don't know if worship is spelled with one P or two, but I know it's a big word. Lord, I believe, he said, and he worshiped him. Uh, This is all I want to point out about that, is that Jesus did not stop him from worship. Look, this is really important. Uh, He worships him as God and Jesus doesn't stop him. Do you remember the book of Acts when it was like Paul and who was it? Paul and Barnabas? Was it Silas? I forget. But in the book of Acts, they're like, they did this crazy awesome miracle. And everybody's like, they're gods. The gods are among us. They're gods. And And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Do not worship us as gods. There is that you could not be in more blasphemy than that. We are so not God. We can't do anything except what God tells us. In fact. We're his messengers, and we would love to talk to you all about God. Let's have a Bible study right now. We'll go all day talking about God, but we are so not God. Don't ever worship us. We're just mortal men. Jesus did not say any of that. You want to worship me as God? That is appropriate. So that part means, yeah, Jesus... I mean, John, in writing this, is all the, there's all this either-or stuff. What are you going to do about Jesus? What are you going to do about Jesus? And we're watching all these people have to decide what do they do about Jesus. The parents, the Pharisees, the crowds, the blind man, they're all moved out of undeclared. And it's like, you've got to decide. Today's your day. And when reading John 9, you realize he's doing that to you right now. Like, reading it, this is your moment. This is your decision. You can hear this, and you only got four options the way I see it. You walk out of here and you say, he is a liar. He is misleading the people. I hate Jesus. Or you can walk out of here and go, it is a legend. This whole book, garbage. Pastor Tom bases his whole life on it. He's just dead wrong, and everybody who has. It is all legend. None of this happened. We can't trust it. Or, he's a lunatic, and you know, a lot of people kept saying, yeah, he's got a demon. He's got a demon. Over and over again, that charge never sticks, because they keep saying demons don't heal people. They destroy people. It's like you never see the charge of demon ever stick for very long because they're like, that's nonsense. Why would it? It's okay, but lunatic or demonic, fine. Or he's the Lord. Like there is no, I don't, if you can show me the other option, I'll let you stand on that middle ground, but it's not there. What will you do? Uh, It's you, it's me. So if you are not a believer, if you are not yet a Christian, the application is obvious. I want you to convert to being a Jesus follower. And that that word may be difficult for people to hear, but I just want to be clear about my intentions. Like, I'm a preacher of the gospel, so this is my gig. Like, I want you to, with all my heart, I've prayed for you, that if you're lost, you will come, kneel down, and be thirsty no more. If you are already a Christian, then all I want you to do is do what the blind guy does. Either or, either or. I want you to either or your life real quick. If He saved all of you, what can He not ask of you? Okay? If He saved all of you, if He is all good, if He is all light, and in Him there is no darkness, then what is He withholding from you? How about this one? If you're a Christian and you're struggling with an addiction, a temptation, uh, something you're experiencing defeat, if that's you, and if you are a believer, then either or that for me. If Jesus walked out of that grave then what can he not overcome in your life? See? It's either or. Either he's dead and in that grave, and, the, and you just got to keep muddling through the best you can, or he walked out of that grave. He can walk you into that victory. And when you stumble, he picks you up. I get it. But, but, but it's either or. I want to pray for you, and um, I, uh, I heard somebody, I, I actually heard multiple commentaries, Warren Wearsby, D.A. Carson, a bunch of people pointed this out, I don't know how I missed it, uh, but he said that once the blind man got saved, he did what we all do, he got into Christian music, and we have so many choices, don't we, uh, Chris Tomlin, and uh, uh, Tomlin, and, uh, uh, Tomlin, but other people, uh, but back then, they only had, listen, 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 back then, they only had 150 praise songs. You know that, right? The early church, they only had 150. And they started, writing, they started writing more. Like, as soon as they got going, they started writing more. It's awesome. But in the, in the beginning, there was only 150 praise praise songs. They're the psalms. And uh, it, multiple commentators point out this guy's favorite psalm and the one he probably sang for the rest of his life. Because uh, everybody's got their favorite, don't you? You do. I do. Uh, his was psalm 27. And when you read it, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear, right? When all these evil men... I want to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord because in the day of trouble, you know, he'll keep me safe in his dwelling. You know what? I want to dwell in his tabernacle. I've been kicked out of this man-made one. And then he says, Even when my parents, when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will receive me. And this guy's singing this stuff. You know, wait for the Lord. I'm confident of this. One day I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, and over and over this whole, like his praise song. But you have one too. Your favorite. And so what is the logical conclusion of your faith? Either or. Either he's Lord or he's not. Sometimes you have to be forced to this point of decision. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. But I didn't write it. It's John 9. He's forcing you. Pick a team. uh, And come into that uh, point. Let's pray. Father, we we ask for your grace. So that uh, these words don't sound like um, judgment or condemnation. But they sound like uh, uh, grace to hurting hearts. We ask, oh God, for your truth to weigh heavy on our hearts, and that you would deny, you would deny peace and comfort to people who need to be rattled and and convicted with this decision. And don't let them, don't let them rest easy. Don't let them go home and watch football or sleep at night until they get right with you. And that those who are right with you, don't let the enemy grant them rattling and discomfort when they need to be at peace uh, for those who are resting in you. So Father, if, if you will comfort the afflicted and afflict those of us who get too comfortable so that we might glorify you and enjoy you forever. And we thank you for this great healing. We thank you not just that you did the healing, but the way you did the healing. We thank you that, that though I scratch the surface, there are people in this room who are going to see depth upon depth and layer upon layer beyond even what we've talked about today that are going to glean great riches out of John 9. And thank you that your word is living and active and continues uh, to be that uh, uh, double-edged sword for our, our lives and our culture. And we pray your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. The appropriate place, I think, uh, to conclude would be the table. Do you want me uh, to go straight into the table? Yeah. And so the ushers know how to do that and our, our band is prepared to lead us. and. Uh, Uh, Steve, you're gifted to do that. So uh, you just lead us as you feel uh, led to do so. And um, uh, I, I will say that on the night Jesus was betrayed, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Jesus took some bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And according to the scriptures, in like manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes for those who claim jesus as their lord and savior this table is for you as a reminder not that you come here to somehow oh i'm worthy enough to be here but rather i come here uh, in his worthiness and in his righteousness i have been invited completely at his grace and he has said yes i can come because he said no to my sin on the cross and he can set me free. And so I come and I'll be coming to this table too with uh, remembrance and reflection that uh, uh, either or, if he is my savior, then what can he not ask of me? And if he is good, then what would he hold back from me? I want to follow him. I want to be more fully his this week. If you're not a believer, I want you to ponder the word you've heard so that um, uh, today would be the day of salvation for you. And uh, there would be many who would rejoice in this room. The ushers know how to get us to the table reverently and properly, and so just follow their lead and they'll get us to uh, Stevie Lee's.
1: Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.